this morning, if you'll just grant me a, an, an indulgence, I have a story I want to share with you. It's an amazing coincidence for me. Um, years ago, when I was pastoring in Florida, I got a pastor from a fellow, I got a call from a fellow pastor named Lee Welkley. Some of you might know Lee. Uh, Lee was coming to the end of his ministry career. He had a church in Jacksonville, Florida, and he was a man who loved his books, like some of you might love a dog or something. He just, the thought of coming to the end and these boxes of books being homeless was, <laughs> was terrifying to him. So he called me and asked me to come get some of his books. He had some history with my family, and although we didn't know each other well, he thought that would be a great place for some of his books to end up. So just out of a kindness to this man, I drove over to Jacksonville, and I pawed a bunch of his books into boxes, and I hauled them out of there, thinking I'll look through them some other day to see if there's a book that's of interest to me. And uh, one of the titles of the books, all I remembered was it had feasts and, and Israel in it. And um, I wanted to, leading up to Thanksgiving, to prepare our hearts for Thanksgiving, I wanted to preach two Sundays on Thanksgiving dinners that we find in the Bible. And so I remembered in the back of my mind that book title, and I went and dug around in those boxes, and I found the, feast, the gospel and the feasts of Israel. But when I looked at the, tit- the, person who, the name of the author, it was Victor Buxbazen. Now, that name means nothing to you, but that was the name of my Sunday school teacher when I was a kid. Victor grew up in Hungary, and he was in a catastrophic car accident when he was a kid, so much so that they put a sheet over him and toe-tagged him to go to the morgue. And an orderly or a nurse or somebody was walking through the hallway and saw movement under the sheet and said, whoa, this one's still alive. They saved his life, but he, half of his head was kind of caved in slightly. He had a very difficult time talking. And um, not only because English was not his first language, but he had this massive head injury that still affected him. And I thought, that can't be the same Victor Buxbazen. I called my dad, and I said, I got this book, and I found it. It can't be Victor. He says, that's our Victor, for sure. And I looked him up on Amazon. He wrote a number of books. And I didn't know this about Victor, but he was born into a Jewish family. And later in life, he came to put his trust in Jesus for salvation. And his whole life, his life passion, which I did not know as a little kid, mostly because his Sunday school lesson was just standing between me and the punch that I wanted to get. You know, the kind with the sherbet, sherbet floating in it? They had that at my church growing up. I was like, can we just speed this up? I want to get to the sherbet. <laughs> I regret that. <laughs> but that is true to who I was as a child. But Victor... Uh, loved to explain Christianity to Jews, and he loved to explain Judaism to Christianity. Uh, He kind of stood at the intersection of those two faiths. He believed in Jesus, and he was eager for Christians to understand exactly the relationship between the faith we have right now going all the way back to Abraham, the continuity of it, how one flowed directly into the other seamlessly. And he wanted to explain to Jews 
how Jesus was the promised fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. He was the Messiah. He was filled with this passion. I knew none of that until I started reading the Gospel and the Feasts of Israel. A fascinating coincidence for me. Uh, but Victor Buxbazen and I hung out in my office today, <laughs> this week, and I just wanted to let you know he's, uh, he was part of my thinking as I prepared this message this morning. What a wonderful coincidence that is. Of course, coincidence is such a small word, isn't it? Shabby. Uh, God is moving in all things. He brings us into these wonderful, divine coincidences, I guess, for lack of a better word. Guys, Thanksgiving. Let's talk about Thanksgiving this morning. Uh, It's a word that conjures images of things in my mind other than God. (laughs) I hear Thanksgiving and I instantly think, well, mostly food, right? Turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing, cranberry sauce. Uh, It brings to mind even such things like football, strangely enough. Football is wrapped up in Thanksgiving. Family gatherings, um, spending time at my grandmother's house. I think of all these things in connection with Thanksgiving. However, when President Lincoln first created the modern holiday of Thanksgiving in 1863, uh, Thanksgiving was intended as a day in which the nation would be oriented around a thankful posture towards God. This Sunday and next, we're going to be preparing our hearts for Thanksgiving, and we'll be doing that by looking at a couple of feasts that we find in the Bible that we might call Thanksgiving dinners. And this morning, before Pastor Andrew comes to lead us in taking communion together, uh, my aim is to help us see how the Lord's Supper is a Thanksgiving dinner. Now, the act of eating is not something we often think about as being spiritually significant, but it is. It was by an act of eating that Adam and Eve plunged all of humanity into the fall. And it's by an act of eating that God calls us to celebrate our homecoming in the gospel at the communion table. At the communion table, we eat the fruit of a very strange sort of tree. It's a tree that is as ugly as sin and as beautiful as salvation. And the fruit of that tree is a broken body and spilled blood. And just as surely as Adam and Eve ate from a tree and were banished, we eat from this tree to celebrate our homecoming. Although Adam and Eve ate in an attempt to become gods and became instead cursed, fallen, and banished at the communion table, guys, we feast on the very body of our God, a self-sacrificing God, and we do that as complete and utter dependence and are blessed, restored, and welcomed home. Guys, I do this often, and you're very patient with me, those of you who are here at State Road long time. I promise I won't take long on this, but it's possible that somebody this morning is brand new to these things. Maybe somebody listening online in East Timbuktu pulled up State Road's YouTube channel. I don't know. (laughs) But let me just briefly explain what the gospel means. Guys, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
We've all sinned. I've sinned, you've sinned, we've all done it. And even if you had lived perfectly, you were born in sin by virtue of natural descent from that first rascal, Adam. We're stained with sin from the very moment we're born. David said, I was brought forth in iniquity. And that's true for all of us. We're totally depraved. And by that, I don't mean we're as bad as we possibly could be. I just mean that every part of us is polluted with sin. Our inner world of emotions and affections, our motivations, we're twisted and we're wrong. The things we love are not things that God loves. The things that we hate or are bored by are things that God is passionate about and that he loves deeply. We're all filled with these misshapen longings, these disordered desires. We're wrong, we're broken, we're fallen and twisted. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. Before there can ever be good news, there must first be bad news. And the bad news is we're all lost, horribly, utterly, completely, unable to save ourselves. But then comes the good news, the incredible news of the gospel, the great central load-bearing truth of the Christian faith, which is this, that in our helpless state, God so loved you that he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to become sin in your place. That by believing in him, you might not perish, but have everlasting life. The wages of sin, what we've all earned and deserve, is death. That's Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, Christians do not gather gather together around the communion table to celebrate our goodness. As though we're the good ones, and those out there... What's wrong with them? <laughs> Guys, we're, we, we're them except by an act of grace. We're not good in ourselves. We have no resume of works to stand on. None of us are saved because of our goodness. That's why Paul proclaimed, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' perfect righteousness is what we base our hope of salvation on not our relative goodness. I believe that most people, their problem with regards to salvation is not their badness. It's their goodness that isn't good enough. I've lived among people here in the county to realize that this is a better place to live than some other parts of our country. We have great communities up here where people are generally good and helpful and kind but they're still sinners. They've still fallen short of the glory of God. The wages for their sin is still death. They still need a savior. They may be relatively good, but they are not perfect. Jesus said that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the greatest law keepers that ever were, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a bit of a paraphrase, but it's true. That's what he said. (laughs) And he also said in that same Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now, if that makes you feel helpless and that heaven is unattainable, good. It should. Attaining heaven is not a product of human doing. It is not something you achieve through striving or effort or checking boxes. It is something that has been achieved for you on the cross in the gospel. It is something that God will only give you as a gift, and you cannot earn. That's the good news that we celebrate as Christians this morning. You don't need a better version of you, friend. You need a Savior. We're all hopelessly lost, and we need Jesus. And so when we come to the communion table, we are celebrating the amazing love of a God who would give us what we don't deserve, but give us instead righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. Clothe us in his righteousness. And Jesus wore our sin on the cross. What an incredible trait. There's no other religion like this. Not even close. So yeah, we come to this table this morning filled with thanksgiving for what God has provided. And I don't come to you with proclamations of what you need to do, but with the wonderful, sweet truth of what has been done for you. Embrace it. Cling to the promise of it. Make Jesus your Lord. Accept him as your Savior this morning. He will accept you. Some of us think we need to get ourselves cleaned up before we can become Christians, and that is the exact opposite of what the Bible says. It'll never arrive. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, that's what we celebrate as Christians this morning. That's what this table, the communion table, is all about. In our Bibles, we often find God directing his people to feast on certain occasions to memorialize the great things that he had done for them. And arguably the most famous example of this uh, way that God operates in the Old Testament scriptures was the Feast of Passover. Uh, the reason the Lord instituted the Passover was so that the people of Israel would always remember and proclaim how God had brought them out of Egypt. If you're brand new to the conversation of Christianity, I might be saying things that are new ideas to you, uh, but in the Old Testament scriptures, the first half of our Bibles, one of the pivotal events in history was that for 400 years, God's people, Israel, lived in a state of bondage and slavery in the land of Egypt. And God miraculously delivered them out of Egypt by a, a whole series of miracles. There were 10 plagues visited on the Egyptians, and, um, and then God brought them out by parting the Red Sea and then brought them into the Promised Land by parting the Jordan River. Um, you can read about all these things and recommend that you do if that's a story that you're not familiar with. But the Passover was the final plague visited on Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh was stubborn. He would not release uh, God's people from their state of slavery, even though God had visited them with all of these successive plagues. But the last and final one that we call the Passover was that the firstborn of every house, and in fact, the firstborn of cattle, was going to die unless they took the, the blood of a sacrificial animal and put it over the lentil of the house. And so on that night, 
the firstborn from the household of Pharaoh all the way down to the lowest in the kingdom were visited by this horrible event except those who had who were covered by the blood, as it were. And there we see clear foreshadowings to our hope that we're covered by the blood of Christ. And so the Passover was instituted by God as this annual feast to remember, to memorialize what God had done in bringing them out by this act. In Exodus 12, 14, we say, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Later in that same chapter, verses 25 through 27, And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And what I think we should see is that the Lord's Supper, communion, was instituted for the same reason. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read these words, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Victor Buxbazen says this, Judaism and Christianity are as inseparable as seed and flower, or tree and fruit. Nowhere can the organic relationship between the two be observed more clearly than in the Passover of the Jews and the Last Supper as ordained by our Lord when he and his 12 disciples sat around the Passover table. God's people of the Old Testament looked back to their miraculous deliverance out of slavery in Egypt through the Passover meal. And God's people of the New Testament, the church, look back to the cross and our own miraculous deliverance from slavery to sin and death, and both involve this blood covering from a sacrificed, from sacrificed blood. As often as we eat this new Passover meal, we remember how death passes over, but cannot touch those who have been covered in the blood of the Lamb. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, not even evil within me. We have been brought out from bondage to sin and lifelong slavery to the fear of death. And in the words of Colossians 1, 13 through 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it is a Thanksgiving dinner. And like most Thanksgiving dinners I have experienced in my life, it involves family coming together around a meal. Not to celebrate our own accomplishments, but to give thanks for what someone else has done for us. Of course, the very act of Thanksgiving implies that it's not something you did, correct? I recently went through my house and replaced three sink fixtures because I'm the best husband ever. 
No. And when I was done, I didn't look in a mirror and said, thanks, Josh. Thanks for taking care of yourself, old boy. <laughs> no. I said no such thing. First of all, I'm not sure they were installed correctly, but they are in. You don't thank yourself for what you do. You thank someone for what they've done for you. And so, yeah, when we come to the table, this is a Thanksgiving dinner. We're not celebrating what we've accomplished, but what's been done for us. So that's perhaps one of the more important reasons why this is a Thanksgiving dinner. At Hide and Seek Club, we've been memorizing Psalm 126.3, the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. And it's with that spirit that we come to this season of thanksgiving and also to the communion table this morning. God has done great things for us and we're filled with joy. Jesus established the, the Lord's Supper with thanksgiving. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 24, we read this, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Incidentally, this act of giving thanks at the communion table is why some Christians, if you come from a Catholic tradition or maybe more kind of a high church experience like Lutherans or Episcopalians, they might refer to the Lord's table as the Eucharist which is from the Greek word for thanksgiving. This meal, when it was first instituted by Jesus, began with a word of thanks. And how can we not feel an upwelling of thanksgiving when we hear those words spoken by Jesus, this is my body, which is for you. It's for you, friend. Matthew records that Jesus specifically drew attention to the supper's connection to our sin. Matthew 26, it says, He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and the Lord's death is explicitly a death for sinners. Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. When the prodigal son returned home in that famous story that Jesus told, what did his father do to welcome him home? He threw a feast. Let's eat. And we come to this meal today, or at least we should, in the same spirit as the prodigal son, not with boasting on our lips, but a humble word of thanks. Thank you for giving me not what I deserved, <laughs> but this incredible open-handed grace. As we come to this table with thanksgiving this morning, we should know that thanksgiving that honors Jesus, and I, always, I need to bring this up every thanksgiving, it seems. It's not just being thankful for what Jesus did. It's being thankful for the Jesus who did it. Christians and non-Christians alike celebrate thanksgiving. And I suspect I suspect that people from all stripes and all creeds and all religions would affirm the importance of being grateful. 
So how is Christian gratitude distinct and different from that of other kinds of people? I would say that it is. And the reason why is because we are not just giving thanks for a thing done for us, we are giving thanks for the one who did it. I'll put it to you this way. You would not be honored if I thanked you for a gift, but it was clear I didn't want you around. You would not be honored if I thanked you for a gift, but I had no regard for you, the giver. You'd feel insulted. No matter how much I thanked you for your gifts, if I didn't enjoy being around you, you would not be honored by the fact that I mumbled the words, thank you. So Christian thanksgiving is first and foremost a delight in the giver. Consider Romans 1, 19 through 21. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a bit like when my children fight and I say to them very sternly, you apologize to your brother. And they say, sorry. I'm not satisfied with that answer, am I? They said the words, but I don't feel like they apologized. And I think that just saying thanks, God says here they did not honor him as God, and they did not say thanks. Those two things must go together. This is what separates Christian thanks from the thanksgiving of the world is that we have a high regard for the giver, not just what we get from him. We love God. We love Jesus. In that verse that we just read, that every, it says that everyone has tasted and experienced the goodness of God in the world that he has made and that he's given us to live in. Guys, every single last blessed one of you have experienced laughter and smiles You've tasted good foods. You've known the pleasures of sex and sunrises. You've smelled wood smoke and held babies. Christians and non-Christians alike are grateful for these and other countless gifts that are all part of the world that God created and gave to you. But the basis of Christian thanksgiving, which is different from that of the world, is delight in who God is. God is excellent. He is satisfying. He is a provider God who never fails. He is the God of festival joy. He's thrilling. His promises never fade or change. He is good. He is so good. And so are all of his ways. And this is why we as Christians can embrace some concepts wholeheartedly 
that are totally alien to the world. Take 1 Thessalonians 5.18, for example. Give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The world says, give thanks in all things? Why would you do that? Give thanks in the midst of car trouble? Unemployment? Rejection? Terminal illness? This idea of giving thanks in all things is totally alien to the world, and that is because their thanks is wrapped up in the gift and without any attached regard for the giver. You remove the gift, they have nothing to say. But gifts come and go. They fade, they break, they fail. Everything in these boxes that we're sending to children around the world will one day be rubbish. Done. But what we hope to impart through that gift is eternal, shining forever unbreakable. It's the use of what is temporary to affect what is eternal. Christian thanks is not wrapped up in things or circumstances or the gifts, but in the person of Jesus Christ. When we as Christians receive good things in life, we give thanks because they remind us of how good God is. And when we find ourselves in the midst of difficult things, things we would never ask for, not in a million years, we still give thanks because we know that God is with us in that dark place, and he's promised to deliver us, if not in this life, then on the promised day when Jesus comes back. You see, you can take away all the things in this world from Christians, and they will give thanks. Because our hope is not in this world, our hope and our investment is laid up in a place where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. John Piper said, gratitude that is pleasing to God is not first a delight in things God gives us. True gratitude must be rooted in something else that comes first, namely a delight in how excellent God is. I'm going to close with this idea, and then I'll invite Andrew and uh, the deacons to come forward to take part in communion. One last thing I feel like I need to address around this Thanksgiving dinner is why must we do it so often? For example, if I gave you a gift, and then I insisted that once a month you gather together to tell me how great it was the gift I gave you, wouldn't that be off-putting? You would start to wonder how I must be very insecure. Or even if I just gave you a gift once and I kind of came and said, you know, I gave you something nice, maybe you should say something. You know, that <laughs> the, the magic is lost at that point, right? When I have to require you to thank me. God in his word commands that we thank him. Does that make him pathetic? Not only does he command that we thank him, but he commands that we thank him regularly at the communion table. Does that make him so insecure? First of all, let's 
let's put this in perspective. Let's remind ourselves again of who God is. We have to do this a lot. God is perfect. He's perfect in all his ways. He lacks nothing. He is all-powerful. He is so perfect, you cannot in any way intrude upon his joy and peace. I think sometimes we portray salvation in this way where God is asking you to pick him. And if you don't pick him, he'll be sad. (laughs) And there we portray God in kind of a small way that I don't think is true to who he is. Don't imagine God standing there hat in hand saying, please pick me. He is holding out to you a royal pardon. It is for you to grab and cling to with the white knuckle crip. (laughs) He is perfect. He lacks nothing. He is so full that he can only overflow as a blessing to you and you can bring him nothing that he needs or that would add to him. So when we come to these sorts of commands in the Bible where God commands you to thank him. Don't imagine that he needs that pat on the back in some way. That command is given to you for your joy. All of God's commands are for your joy. Not because they scratch some itch in God. He needs nothing. He has commanded you to come to this table with thanksgiving regularly again and again and again because you need it, not him. Something in you is made whole and satisfied when you come to God with thanksgiving. We need it. Have you ever pondered the fact, and this is amazing, we've talked about this on other Sunday mornings together, haven't we, State Road, that God created Adam and Eve with the need to eat in the garden. Again, eating is spiritually significant. God created Adam and Eve in perfection with a chronic need. They must eat. And the Bible tells us that God provided them lots of trees in the garden and they could go to all of them and eat except for one. They got hungry, and when they did, they ate from the trees that God had provided. And chief among them was the tree of life, and God encouraged Adam and Eve to come to it and enjoy its fruit often because in so doing, they were looking to God and life with God as the treasure of the garden. All of their eating was thanks, and their enjoyment of the fruit was enjoyment of God himself. All of its flavors was a tasting of something like what God is. The enjoyment of the tree of life in the garden was enjoyment of the giver of life because ever since the creation of the world, who God is has been revealed through creaturely means. Even right now, we the church are imaging forth Jesus in the world. We're the body of Christ, we're told. Jesus is made visible through his church. He is the head, we're the body, his hands, his mouth, his feet. God right now is represented through creaturely means in the world he created, and those creaturely means are us, brothers and sisters. But in the Garden of Eden, it was the tree of life. This is part of how God operates in the world, is through these means. What does it say about God that he created man at the first with this need to eat? 
And by extension, what does it mean that God commands that we come back to this table not just once to say thanks, but regularly? I think it means that he's not just the giver of life, but he's also the sustainer of it. He is glorified not only just through our need for him, but more than that, through our continuing dependence on him. We never talk about our salvation just in the past tense, as though we walked away from God blessed but independent of him. No, we come back to the table regularly. We must continuously express our needy dependence on him, and we must continually come to the table to enjoy again the satisfaction of being fed in our spirits by what God provided on the cross. He gives life. And he gives it again and again and again. He gives life and he sustains it. God does not just give life as a one-time event where, again, we walk away blessed but independent from him. He gives it in this continuing way, and we walk in daily dependence on him. This was surely the lesson for the wandering Israelites who were instructed in the after being brought out of Egypt, only to gather enough manna for the day's need and not to hoard some against tomorrow. This is why Jesus, when he taught us how to pray, instructed us to ask God to give us our daily bread because we never walk away from him blessed but independent. We need him again and again and again. So we come to the table this morning. With hearts full of thanksgiving, he has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy.